This week's episode of The Weeds is sponsored by Harry's Razors. Harry's will give you $5 off your first order with promo code WEEDS. So stop overpaying for a great shave. Go to harrys.com right now. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com. Enter code WEEDS at checkout. Today's episode of The Weeds is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus. And just for a limited time, The Great Courses Plus is offering our listeners a chance to stream this course, Inexplicable Universe, Unsolved Mysteries. It's a $95 value and hundreds of other courses, all for free. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. The following podcast contains explicit language. Jack Nicholson, why are you drinking all the lemonade? Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds, Vox's policy podcast on the Panoply Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, joined by my colleagues Ezra Klein and Sarah Cliff. Let me jump in here for one sec to say that on my other podcast, the aptly named Ezra Klein Show, I've got Bill Gates this week for a sort of lengthy interview about stopping climate change, about how far we are uh, along the way for artificial intelligence, about whether the U.S. educational system is... Uh, making people creative or, or somehow staunching that. Uh, he talks through his favorite books. It's a, a very fun interview that I think Weeds fans will enjoy. So it's a rainy morning here in Washington, D.C., <laughs> and it means it's time for us to finally face up to the topic that I personally have been dreading ever <laughs> since. You know what makes weeds grow, Matt? Rain, rain, and international trade deals. <laughs> yeah, those two things. But um, the people demand it. Ever since the podcast has launched, we have gotten email after email asking us to say something about the Trans-Pacific Partnership. In the spirit of the weeds, we really should tackle this. There are a lot of weeds. There's a lot of policy. It's, uh, <laughs> I don't have like a great feeling about it. So this is a deal, though, that was reached over a, a long and extended period of negotiations between the United States and a, a number of countries in, in Asia, but also in the Western Hemisphere. So uh, Japan, along with the United States, is, is the biggest country in it. But Canada is also involved, which is a very significant trade partner for the United States. So the changes in, in those terms are important. Vietnam is also a, a large country in terms of its population, although because it's poor, the economy is relatively small, but that's 80 million people. There's also a, a big deal for the Vietnamese economy. They have some of the, the larger policy changes they're making. Australia and New Zealand are also involved, and they are very jazzed up about it. Some of the best resources for reading about this actually come from the government of New Zealand because they uh, both speak English, and also New Zealand people seem to uh, give a damn about international trade in a way Americans don't. There are uh, good explainers over there in the government of New Zealand. Yeah, it's, it's great. pretty terrifying. <laughs> but sometimes dairy is like a major industry in New Zealand. So they, they go like really deep on like the milk rules, which I'm not sure is what everyone cares about. So there was a big sort of political controversy about this a few months ago in 2015 because Congress was taking a decisive vote on what's called trade promotion authority, which is basically a legislative guarantee that the president can sign a deal and then the deal that he signs will come for an up or down vote. So technically, that has nothing to do with the underlying merits of TPP, but I think everyone who has ever spoken to any member of Congress about this uh, would say that they were basically basing their decisions on whether they wanted this to happen. If you want it to happen, you vote for the Trade Promotion Authority, and if you don't, uh, you vote no on it. Can I jump in for one second? Yeah. It's just a weird 
tick of why. So normally what would happen is a bill would get sent to Congress or get considered by Congress, and they would say, well, I like this part and I don't like that part, so we're going to modify this. We're going to send this part back to committee. We're going to add an amendment here and, and take this bit out. And, and you would sort of go through a process of tweaking. But because this is a deal negotiated with other countries, whereas if Congress makes any change to it, then you got to go back to all the other countries and the whole sort of edifice of the deal begins to collapse because they would have to then go back and renegotiate parts. The, the idea is that the only way to pass trade deals is to have them be considered by Congress unchanged. Congress can say no, they can say yes, but they can't say yes, but. Right, exactly. I mean, if you, if you tweak the milk import rules, then New Zealand is going to get off the bus and the whole deal collapses. So you have to, like, do it sort of all or nothing. Although it's interesting because the legislative mechanic is that trade promotion authority is not attached to any specific deal. The authority just extends for a certain number of years. So the president could run off and make a deal with Peru tomorrow. <laughs> it's expected he won't do that. <laughs> Although it might be nice. They have uh, exotic potatoes there that I, for one, would enjoy trying. <laughs> the tariffs so, are too high on those exotic potatoes. Well, you know, I honestly don't know why, why we don't have them, but, you know, I'll look into it. Um, <laughs> this is an issue that really divided the Obama administration from congressional Democrats. I think it's been the case for a long time now that congressional Democrats have been skeptical of these kind of trade agreements. But proponents had hoped that with Obama in the White House, that would drive more Democratic support than you saw when George W. Bush was in office because, you know, people would want to give the president a win or he would have the credibility to sell it. And that really wasn't the case. Uh, the AFL-CIO came out very strongly against this agreement. Elizabeth Warren, who's like a big, highly visible figure, came out very strongly against it. And Almost every Democrat went, particularly in the House, went heading for the hills. Obama got a, a handful of Democratic senators, which was all he needed to sort of get it over the line. But now Donald Trump has come out very swinging against this deal and I think to some extent has called into question whether it would actually pass, not, notwithstanding the, the TPA vote. So there's a, there's a decent chance that the merits of the agreement will get debated again in a way that I, I think seemed unlikely when, when TPA first happened. And I think so one of the reasons you see congressional Democrats opposing something like TPP is because of the effect it might have on jobs, where you have people who generally in the manufacturing sector, who if we lower barriers to trade, their jobs could get replaced by people in other countries. So you see Democrats saying, you know, we want to protect these people and save their jobs. And there definitely is some truth to that. If you look at you know any of the analyses that have been done of TPP, those are the places that are going to get hurt. One of the things, though, that's really hard about understanding kind of the size of TPP and one of the reasons it's almost hard to form an opinion on it is just because it's so giant. If you think of, like, let's say the people losing their jobs, they're also going to have access to cheaper goods, presumably. They're spouse who still has a salary, their spouse's buying power will get larger and they'll be having access to these cheaper goods because we've lowered trade barriers. And it's really hard to understand at the end of the day what exactly TPP would mean for the U.S. Another good example is the pharma provisions, where there's some provisions that actually no one's really happy with. Pharma doesn't think they're good enough. Advocates think they're too much of a problem. But they basically allow pharma companies to extend patents on um, 
on drugs in other countries who are a part of TPP. And, you know, there's worry that for those people, they'll have less access to drugs. They'll, you know, if there's a new HIV drug that comes out, it'll be harder to create a generic in one of these countries that signs on to it. The argument pharma will make, well, this is going to bring more money back to us. We'll be able to invest this in other drugs. We'll start, like, building these better drugs for you all. There's so much going on in this. I don't know how many pages it is. It's definitely longer than a Obamacare. Ton yes, of I believe the technical term that is, is a the technical fuck ton term. of pages. But so I, it's like, yeah, it's really hard to figure out what exactly. But I think this is going to I mean. think you can elevate to it to a high level and say like broadly what's happening here, and it's that the United States and Canada are opening their domestic markets to agricultural goods from Australia, New Zealand and manufactured goods from the Southeast Asian countries. And in exchange, those countries are adopting intellectual property rules that pharmaceutical manufacturers and entertainment, you know, content Hollywood type companies like. And they are also liberalizing their markets for financial services and some other high-end professional services. So the like the big advocates for this in the United States are intellectual property and financial services exporters, right? They see big new market opportunities for the United States in here. The opponents are the sort of standard constellation of labor unions originally, although they've been joined by a sort of a very big network of left-wing advocacy type groups who have concerns that are so as Sarah was saying right you have some people just saying look these new pharmaceutical rules that are being adopted it's not that they are like bad for american workers or necessarily bad for america at all they're just bad for the world that a lot of people feel that the us pharmaceutical intellectual property regime is wrong or and certainly then, wrong right. for Vietnam. Right. But I mean, a lot of people think it's wrong for no, the United States. No, I understand. States. I'm just right. noting that. Right. And, and like one of the ironies of this is that one person who thinks the rules are wrong for the United States is Barack Obama, whose administration and its budget calls for shortening the, the data exclusivity period for new pharmaceutical patents. But in Barack Obama's Trans-Pacific Partnership, it not only doesn't shorten them, it makes Vietnam extend them. And Although, to be fair, the Obama administration did pass Obamacare, which did support even longer versions right. of yes, this. Yes, so they've yes. been a little all over and the then, place and then these, on these. And then the, the pharmaceutical side of TPP got negotiated down to be, be not quite as bad by the time yes. First, I want to commend what I think is the best high-level description I've heard yet of TPP. That was, that was really good, Matt. I do want to say that I think one reason this is a hard discussion to have, though, which is embedded in the abstracted discussion you laid out, is that trade deals have become a real dog's breakfast of things. They just do so much across so many different sectors in so many different ways. It isn't like with Obamacare where you really kind of ask yourself, do I support increasing taxes mostly on rich people and cutting some Medicare spending to vastly increase health insurance coverage across the United States, nor is it like No Child Left Behind where you could say, okay, do I think we should have a tougher standards and testing regime on local schools? It really does a lot of different things. And depending on which thing you think is most important, depending on how much you weight pharmaceutical intellectual property or content intellectual property, depending on how much you weight having cheaper imports from Vietnam, the deal looks very different. And one, I think, tough thing about TPP and the argument about TPP, and I think one reason certainly I've had like Matt a bit of trepidation about this episode, simply because I don't have a very strong opinion on TPP and tepid, weak opinions make for bad podcasting, <laughs> is that 
a lot of the arguments made for it by people trying to create a strong through line are garbage. They're just bad arguments. TPP isn't about free trade. A lot of the things that happen in it are, if anything, uh, barriers of a sort to trade. For instance, making much tougher intellectual property laws. And it isn't just about tariffs and, and, and things we traditionally think of. It's a lot about regulations and how regulations are going to work and be harmonized across different countries. And then there's been an argument from the Obama administration that this is really about the pivot to Asia. And it's, it's an important part of national security to show we can lead an economic regime across that region, because if we don't do it, China is going to do it instead of us. And I think if you talk to China experts, they're not super impressed by that argument. And I think this has been one of the really hard things. People keep trying to find a simple way to help people decide if they're for this or they're against it. But the problem is there's so much in here and the things are so different inside of it. And the thing has to be considered so much as a whole that it just becomes very difficult. So then you end up going into sort of research and, and here too, it gets very confusing. There is a lot of disagreement in the economic literature about what effect these trade deals have had, both what they will have prospectively. We were looking at both a, an analysis from the Peterson Institute for International Economics that said this would increase GDP by a half percentage point a year in 2030. And then I, I forgot, wasn't that what it was? Sorry, yes. No, I was just saying it's so, one of the things that strikes me, so the other one was from Tufts, basically yeah, was saying Tufts, it was yeah. slightly, but the numbers, you know, we're talking about it's like big deal. On the aggregate, the numbers are like relatively not giant. I, I would say if it did get a, a full half point of GDP, like ongoing in 2030, which is what I, I think Peterson was, that'd be really big. I just don't know that it will. And I think a lot of people have very bad feelings about, say, NAFTA, which had a lot of these analyses going to be a huge game changer. And then people felt was, if anything, a little bit negative. Well, I think one thing that's so hard is predicting how all these actors will react to non-tariff barriers. So tariffs, like you can see prices come down. It's like a very easy to analyze. Like one thing you look at the TPP does is gives financial institutions better access to Asia. How do you measure that benefit? Or like if you're telecom and like you go into Asia, how do you measure if we open this up, our company's going to go? Will it be a big boon? Will it be a giant bust because they lay all this infrastructure? And then for some reason, you know, it turns out they're really bad at delivering cable in Vietnam or wherever they decide to go in. And I think that's one thing that makes it for me difficult to kind of wrap my head around is that there's so much unknown in trying to forecast that. You really can't with these things that are more qualitative than tariffs with these barriers that exist now that we don't really know what happens when they take them down. It's really hard to wrap your head around what the forecasting will mean. And we try and like, when you look at these economic forecasts, like what Peterson and Tufts do, they try and like put a number on it. They kind of like look at trade deals and say, we think if barriers fall, you know, it'll be X sort of boon, but it's all a lot of guesswork. Kind of one of the examples that reminds me of that I know well in healthcare is a lot of Republicans have argued um, that insurance companies should be able to sell across state lines, that a company from Georgia where insurance is not very regulated should be able to go into New York and sell New Yorkers less regulated, cheaper insurance plans. But it turns out some states tried this and like nobody wanted to sell across state lines. Like it's just really hard to build a network and negotiate with all these hospital CEOs you don't know. Like no one wanted to enter these markets. And it's a different, it's obviously a very different playing field. But the example there kind of struck me as a very concrete analogy to why it's so hard to 
think about what this would actually mean. I don't another... want to do a, a, an episode on that idea. I, that idea makes me so mad. I, I, another thing that's, <laughs> challenging, that, that's challenging with this is that it's, it's difficult to specify exactly what is meant by the no TPP scenario. So, for example, the, the head of the Peterson Institute, Adam Posen, is a, a super smart guy, a great economist, and deeply knowledgeable about Japan and the, the Japanese economy. And TPP is probably a bigger change for Japanese economic policy than for U.S. economic policy. And, and Japan's a very important country. And a lot of people, especially foreign observers of Japan, are very excited about the liberalization of the Japanese domestic agriculture market. I, I think with good reason. Uh, Japan has a lot of fucked up rules about like rice and, <laughs> and stuff like that. Um, and, and, oh, so, Japan. And, and, the, and the Japanese <laughs> government really feels that reforming these aspects of its domestic market is a really good idea. This is the the third arrow of Abenomics. Anyway, it's it's important. It's it's a really important issue in Japanese politics and the Japanese economy. But they could do that without TPP. The difficulty is that in the current international trade dynamic, having a country stop screwing over its own domestic consumers of agricultural goods, that's considered a quote-unquote concession by Japan that it's making quote-unquote in exchange for improved access to these Southeast Asian markets. But that's not actually why the Japanese government thinks this is a good idea. They think the domestic agricultural protections are bad. They think it would improve the Japanese economy to dismantle them, bring in cheaper foreign agricultural stuff, continue moving Japan's shrinking population into the cities, that they are actually running out of workers in Japan. And it's very bad for the Japanese economy to be essentially wasting people doing work that can be outsourced to people in Vietnam. Like, growing rice is not the I mean, in trade lingo, it's, it's at the comparative advantage of Japan, which is the global center of the robotics industry, right? <laughs> so TPP is good for Japan in that sense. But also, if TPP falls apart, Japan can fix its own policies. And you see some of the same stuff in, in the United States, right? So the United States is going to get more imported dairy goods from New Zealand. If that was the only provision in it, we would have a political fight that's easy to understand, right? American dairy farmers, Bernie Sanders would be up there saying, this is going to cost my constituents jobs. And then other people like supermarket lobby would be like, oh, we'll get cheaper milk to sell to people. And we could like fight it out, right? And, and you know, reasonable people can agree and, and disagree, but that would be what's at stake. But the way the current multilateral trade process works is not like that. It's instead... American export companies, which in the modern day and age, that means largely software companies, Hollywood, banks, pharmaceuticals, and Boeing. Those are like the big American export industries. They get around the table and they're like, well, what do we want foreign countries to do for us? And then they look at a list and it's like, well, what can we give those countries in exchange? And one of the things we can give away is more access to our domestic dairy market. But that's a sort of backwards way of thinking about the, the policy issue, right? Like the average American is not going to benefit from giant multinational Wall Street banks gaining more access to Vietnamese customers. But they might actually benefit from the things we quote unquote give up yeah. in exchange for securing that win. Ancient history, but like 
trade politics in the, in the United States used to be that Democrats were largely for free trade because on the theory that that would be good for like farmers and, and poor people. And Republicans represented like factory interests. And so they wanted tariffs to protect them. And it was a pretty straightforward. It was an argument about unilateral free trade. Should we bring the tariffs down so we can get cheap goods? Or should we keep the tariffs up so we could protect manufacturing jobs? But since World War II, it's been turned totally inside out into this series of international negotiations where each country's like strong domestic export lobbies try to work out deals with each other and then like strong arm the national legislature. And I think what we're seeing in TPP is fundamentally the logic of that paradigm is like it's running out. You know, that the, the export industries have become so weird and what they want from particularly from advanced countries like the United States is so unrelated to what people think of as even being trade that it's becoming really, really difficult to defend these deals in like a public facing normal way. And it's why the arguments that you're hearing seems so so wrong, right? I mean, I've had members of Congress tell me Barack Obama in his seventh year as president somehow suddenly sends someone down to the hill and is like, oh, hey, guys, this is the centerpiece of my national security agenda. And they're like, no, no, it isn't. <laughs> like, this is the seventh year of your presidency, right? So to me, like, that's the biggest takeaway from this, that, like, whether this deal gets done or not, whether it's good or not, if people want to reduce international trade barriers substantially in the future, they're going to have to come up with something else. I want to pick up on, on a couple of things you said there, Matt, because I think there are a couple of really important things embedded there. One, which you, I think, mentioned a little bit, is that America exports fewer and fewer, at least as a percentage of our exports, things. We export more and more services. Selling financial services or Hollywood intellectual property around the globe is not like selling cars or it's not like selling rice. And it requires very different questions and very different things that you're, that you're worried about. You're worried, um, among other things, with intellectual property about people just copying things in other places, right? You're worried about, you know, that you're going to go to Vietnam and they're going to have a bunch of generic drug manufacturers making your extremely expensive to research and, and, and come up with pharmaceutical for no money at all. And of course, you can't make any money in that market anymore. And so it's understandable, except that a lot of people just feel, well, look, pharmaceutical companies are plenty fucking rich already. They clearly have enough incentive to innovate. If they had more great blockbuster drugs, they'd be doing them even without better intellectual property protections in Vietnam. And even so, like the Vietnamese are very poor and they should just get really cheap drugs, which is a, a position I'm more or less on the side of. And then the other thing, though, and I think this has been really important to this debate, and it's been important in ways that have been very hard for people to discuss in clear ways because the, the process is meant to be secret. But, but the process behind these trade deals is very complex. It is very esoteric. And people have very different views and to some degree quite self-interested explanations of how that process works. So on the one hand, the process has certain arguably necessary conditions in it that make it very opaque. So you're doing these very delicate negotiations between many, 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 many different countries. 
And if things leak in America about the dairy negotiations that are picked up by the New Zealand press, then it could blow everything up in New Zealand. That isn't something the New Zealand government would have let out. So the negotiations happen under extreme secrecy across many different nations because it's so hard for everybody to predict what can and can't be said publicly. And you just have so many moving parts and moving players who are, who are accountable to different folks. So then you have this uh, argument that's made now for many, many years that these trade negotiations are very secret. So then what happens is that the American government, at least, I don't know how this is done in other countries, sets up a very Baroque process in which there are these large advisory councils. And they are advising on every chapter of the TPP, everything from sovereign wealth funds in other countries to agricultural tariffs to intellectual property. And if you talk to the Obama administration, they are furious at the idea that TPP is done in secret. They note that unions are on a lot of these councils and advocates are on a bunch of these councils, but they can't go and say what they've seen in public. So their view is that they get this kind of a, a little bit of, of transparency into the process, but they're, they're not listened to, that their feedback isn't really taken to heart, and that also they're, they're not allowed to, to say what they know. So the fact that they can know privately that they don't like how this trade deal is going is not actually of help to them in making this a more transparent process and activating their membership. And meanwhile, I do think just really looking at this process, that it is one of these processes, and you get this in Washington a fair amount. There's a lot of this in the regulatory system currently, too, where you have a process that is designed to elicit certain kinds of feedback. And the intention of that process was to make something that was very opaque more transparent. But the problem is that it is such a complex process, in part for very good reasons, that the only people who have the time and energy to figure it out are very self-interested. So on the one hand, you have organized labor who they're just big enough and they care about this stuff enough that they, they do jump into it. But other than that, you have a ton of lobbying, more or less. Right? You have a ton of people who are in there, sometimes for it, sometimes against it, but because they want something from the process. And so you have this world where, on the one hand, they're doing all these things, and these things are cumbersome, actually, to try to make it possible for folks to weigh in and say what they think and what they want in the agricultural chapter of TPP. But in practice, that creates a system in which you get a lot more input from lobbyists than you do from, from other people. And you have the, this world where the opponents of the law know enough that they don't like it, but nothing can actually be said publicly. So it's very hard to have an open and honest debate. Now we have the actual text, so the debate has gotten better. But I think a lot of the anger over it and a lot of the sort of bitterness that happened uh, around the TPP debate came during this process with its very weird incentives on it. Well, I think you're right. You see that a lot in Washington. And just to kind of like pick up on what Ezra was saying, one thing, so if you actually look at TPP, I think we did, a, we did a series of explainers, and this wasn't even actually on TPP. It was on summaries of, it was summaries that the government put out. No, we were, of, we were to be fair to us, we, uh, to be fair to some of those folks, they were doing the actual text. Okay. So we were, and it's giant and cumbersome, and some parts of it are like so hard to navigate. Like I was just reading through like the farmer provisions, and like you terrible. really need like a team of like five lawyers to understand like what exactly they mean and which drugs are affected and who gets the five-year data exclusivity and who gets the eight-year data exclusivity. Or like if you look, another big part is um, like rules of origin kind of regulation, where these are regulations about if something is going to be eligible for these reduced tariffs, how much of it has to come from a TPP country. And those are incredibly complex, too, and like very difficult to read if you are not 
reading them with the assistance of, again, some lawyers or lobbyists that you've hired. So it's, I mean, it's partially about having influence and being able to talk to someone, but literally just the yeah. act of understanding things, knowing things. I mean, this happens a lot in Washington. It's kind of one of the things that worries me a little bit about this is going to be an aside, but why not fall into the weeds of this, but of kind of the growth of um, trade media and trade publications in Washington, where you have these very expensive trade publications. And I, I, I used to work for one of them, and they do great news. I just want to quickly say what a trade publication is. A trade is. publication is something that covers a specific industry very closely. So you could have a healthcare trade publication that is looking at new regulations coming out of HHS and getting the latest gossip out of FDA and like really giving you up to the minute inside the regulatory congressional system. So you have really these kind of eyes on the process. They're great. They provide like a lot of really important granular reporting. I, I used to, the thing I used to cover was state implementation of healthcare. So like I knew what every state was doing on healthcare. And if you paid a lot of money, you could know that as well. And it really creates kind of a two-tiered system of access where if you're not able to pay for, you know, in the case of TPP, these expensive lawyers, or in the case of other regulatory issues in Washington, these expensive publications, you're essentially locked out of the debate a little bit where other people, you know, are buying access into these expensive knowledge sources. And it creates kind of a two-tiered track where some people are getting a lot of access. And it really revolves around money and finances. That was a huge diversion. No, from but it's TPP, true. There's a tremendous <laughs> amount of information asymmetry in Washington mm-hmm. between people who can pay for the people to collect the information and the experts to then interpret the information, and and folks who can't. It's a real bit. There was a great. I think it was in the Washington Monthly a couple months ago. Yeah, about the rise of paywall mm-hmm. versus free. That that the, the web has obviously undermined a lot of like traditional subscription model and creates this like bifurcation into like free publications that need to focus on things that are of very broad general interest and then very expensive niche publications that are like know everything about what's happening but so that means normal people uh, don't have access to to what's happening but i i also think particularly on international trade negotiations that the United States, and I'm not sure how many of foreign countries replicate this, but I think it's not all that common, has a dedicated federal bureaucracy called the U.S. Trade Representative's Office, whose only mission is to negotiate trade deals. If I got to sit down and, and deliver some some honest talk to Barack Obama, I would tell him that like that is where this has gone awry for him, is that since he has a bunch of guys whose only job is to negotiate complicated international trade deals, they went and did that. And it like took them years. And like so now at the end of his administration, they have this thing that like does not advance his political coalitional objectives, is not that big of a deal economically, divides his party, advances certain domestic interests and harms certain other ones in a way that seems a little unrelated to any of his like big picture policy objectives. And it's his. It's his administration (laughs) did it. Because like this was the deal to be done. And if it had gone in some other way, right, a different bureaucratic process. If Tim Geithner had, you know, just like flown off to Asia at some point and come back and be like, Mr. President, we could probably negotiate a deal that would be great for banks and pharmaceutical companies, but possibly bad for manufacturers and dairy farmers. And it would be like a lot of work and a big political lift to get it done. I think they would have said, eh, 
<laughs> like, like, you know what I mean? Because like, of all the things in the world that would be a big political lift to get done, like, why this? But it it seems like a small political lift when you have a dedicated federal agency that doesn't do anything except all this work. Like, they literally have nothing better to do. And they're, they're cooking up, like, an even bigger, even more complicated, even weirder deal with, with the European Union at, at the moment. Because, again, they have nothing better to do. And the EU has the same thing. They have a dedicated international trade deal-making bureaucracy. And what they've been doing in, in the EU... Their version of running amok has been negotiating deals with, like, random small countries around the world. So there'll be, like, a, a free trade agreement between the European Union, which is enormous, and, like, some small South American country. And like it, <laughs> because, you know, it's like when you give a bureaucracy a mission, they carry out the mission. And, like, one of your goals as, like, a big-picture executive leader is to think strategically about, like, what do you want to have there be? purpose-built organizations off doing, like, for good reason, right? Like, we have people who are out there trying to catch bank robbers. I do think one interesting thing about that and just about the political dynamics here is that there is a strong incentive in all presidencies, I think, but I, I think this is very dispositionally true for Obama, that he wants to get things done. He wants accomplishments. And as you mentioned, the TPP authority, the authority to pass this, did not get many Democratic votes, but it actually did pass. Right. And the reason it passed is that Republicans are actually, at least have been until now, pro this kind of trade deal. And so something I have to just think is, is important to the, the political dynamics here is that this is something Obama could get done potentially with a House controlled by Paul Ryan and a Senate controlled by Mitch McConnell. I think that's been one of the reasons that it has generated so much force right now because it isn't like they're choosing between, well, should we add a public option to Obamacare or should we yes. you know, do, do something they, they love and, and, and advances their coalition? It's kind of it's kind of this or nothing, right? right. It's this or sort of total gridlock. And that does not or make... Or international business tax reform. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Next time on um, the weeds. So I'm not saying that makes it a good deal or a bad deal. I, as I said, like, I really think this deal is, is complex. And I also think some of the, the broader arguments about our complex. One thing I really wish people would do, and I wish this for labor, I wish this for more economists, I would love to see some of these folks produce like what they think a trade deal should look like. When you evaluate healthcare plans, there are a lot of people who have put forward their ideal healthcare plan. Like you can read the Heritage Foundation healthcare plan and the American Enterprise Institute healthcare plan and CAPS healthcare plan and physicians for, for single payer and then all these different things and then sort of decide where this diverges and where it converges and, and how important those things are to you. Here, these things just drop. And there's just like nothing to look at. And you're just dealing with these esoteric analyses and this million different moving parts. And it's just it's just difficult. I'm not sure that it isn't good to keep the trade machinery on a path here. But it, it is very hard for me to look around at the evidence here and look around at the, the arguments and just say this is just an obvious, easy, complete win in one direction or I think another. One of the hard things about making like an analogous my perfect trade proposal sort of thing with healthcare, you generally have like a thing you are yeah. trying to do. So generally the two things, you either want to expand coverage or reduce costs. Like those are the kind of big pictures. You know, as Matt was saying, as we started, like trade deals haven't just become about liberalizing trade. Like you're, you're not talking about this, like here's, and you were saying this at the beginning, like here's the thing we wanted to do. I don't know that there's even consensus on like, oh, this is the reason we want to do this thing. Like it's what is even the scope? Right. Like, right. What, like what is this? Wait, like a health care bill is meant to address health care. 
And, you know, we can disagree around the margins about, like, what is really or really not a healthcare issue. But I think we have a sense, right, of, like, what that conversation yeah. is about. The trade deal, it's, like, sometime about 20 years ago, drug companies just, like, hopped on. And we're like, oh, hey, do you know what's a trade issue? <laughs> Patent lengths in foreign <laughs> countries. But, like... I don't know why that's a trade. Like, it, it isn't. If you read, a, a like, a textbook chapter about trade, you won't find anything about foreign countries' patent lines. <laughs> that's a form of protection. Right. Well, but it's become actually central to trade. Right. No, I understand. Right. So you could say, like, well, what would an ideal, you know, trade treaty do? And it's like anyone could say anything. It's just like any policy that the government of Japan has that you would like changed in theory could have been on the TPP docket, which like, you know, personally, I think normal people don't have opinions about this, but like any big multinational company has an infinite list of possible complaints about foreign countries' regulations. So there, there is a ton here and it's like, I feel bad. I think we should cut this conversation here. I feel bad because we've not talked about the argument about how companies learn from each other in these trade deals. We've not yes. talked about investor state dispute settlement protections, but I do want to say, if you do want to dive deep into this, we've done a lot of work at Vox.com. You can go search for it on site. That dives really deep into a lot of the individual chapters here. So if you if you feel like going deep, we can we can help you out. A lot of that stuff will be in show notes. We'll get it in there. Yeah, and let's let's take a break, and uh, maybe 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 we have to revisit stupid TPP. <laughs> We bet you're just like us and, and you love to learn new things. And that's why we're so excited about the Great Courses Plus video learning service. It gives you unlimited access to a huge library of the Great Courses lecture series in tons of fascinating subjects, history, science, cooking, you name it. And they're giving our listeners an incredible opportunity right now. Watch one of their most popular courses, The Inexplicable Universe, Unsolved Mysteries, absolutely free. Inexplicable Universe is presented by the well-known astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson. He's exploring some of the universe's biggest mysteries. He takes these like complicated big physics topics and he makes them understandable. You learn about black holes, string theory, quantum foam, tons of weird, wild, but really fascinating stuff. And just for a limited time, The Great Courses Plus is offering our listeners a chance to stream this course. Inexplicable Universe, Unsolved Mysteries. It's a $95 value and hundreds of other courses, all for free. But this free offer is only available for a limited time, so hurry. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. So we are, we are talking to each other the day after Donald Trump won another stunning victory uh, in Nevada. Huge. Huge victory. Huge victory. And this one was pretty big. And I think it was big for a couple of reasons. I don't think we know quite, or, or Matt, you may know if we do, what the exact total is. But it was in the neighborhood of 45%, Well, he got right? 46%. Okay, 46%. And I think Rubio got 24 <laughs> and Cruz was a little lower than that. A couple reasons is big. One, this is Trump's third win in a row. He won big in New Hampshire. He won big in South Carolina. Now he's won big in Nevada. Two, Nevada was supposed to be a really good state for Marco Rubio, both demographically and because of Rubio's past association with the Church of Latter-day Saints, which is a, a big deal in Nevada. Well, also an association that he formed while he lived in Nevada. Right. Traditionally, it's a little odd, but traditionally you expect candidates to do well in the states that they're from. So this was another... Another sort of example of Marco Rubio declaring he had won a stunning victory in second place. But this time it came in a state where at other points in the primary, his staff has talked about Nevada being a, a really good place for Marco Rubio to begin his winning streak. It's and, also and it's a caucus happen. state. It's a right? caucus. And so caucuses that. are supposed to advantage 
professionally organized campaign, which Donald Trump was thought to not have. It shows in part Trump's campaign, I would say, learning and improving, right? That in Iowa, they had a polling lead that they then underperformed pretty badly, I think, due to bad organization. In Nevada, they had a big polling lead, but I think a lot of people had thought he might underperform it again. But this time, he did about what he was polling. That or people just love him so much that there was no organization and they all just ran out to caucus anyway. Let me bring up one big point here, though, if if I can, because I, I do think it's interesting. I wrote a piece about the Nevada results, which is called The Republican Party is Broken. And there's been an interesting debate, and it's a debate to some degree that has played out at the weeds, too, about whether the Republican Party could have or should have stopped Donald Trump earlier. And I actually think this debate is important because where you fall on it, I think, has real bearing on whether you think they can stop Donald Trump now. And what I think is interesting is there's been a discussion that has sort of gone on that the problem with the, the Republican Party is that they didn't coalesce around an anti-Trump fast enough, that they, they should have very early in the process really thrown a lot of endorsements and a lot of money behind Marco Rubio. They should have gotten other people out of the race. There's just been this ongoing critique that they just haven't done the work of a party. And I've really come to think that's wrong. I think that the Republican Party did try to veto Donald Trump, which is another thing a party can do. The sort of constellation of actors associated with the party have in in every way they could have and in a lot of different venues tried to signal to to voters that Trump is unacceptable and that some of these other guys would be more Republican, a, a better fit. The first Fox News debate was really dedicated to destroying Donald Trump. It created a, a feud between him and Fox News and particularly him and Megyn Kelly that continues to this day. The National Review, which is a real sort of enforcer of what ideological conservatism is meant to be, had this whole issue where they pulled people from every part of the party to write about how Donald Trump isn't a real conservative. There have been a bunch of moments where Republicans thought Donald Trump had finally said something that wasn't just politically incorrect, but incorrect to Republicans, like questioning John McCain's war heroism. And every Republican of any note really jumped on him in the press wrote about how Trump had gone too far and then it just didn't didn't matter. And so I was talking with Mark Sanford, who former governor of South Carolina, now a congressman from South Carolina, and he made this good point to me. And he said, we could coalesce around whoever we want. If coalescing around someone means that person is seen as the establishment or establishment like that's actually going to hurt them this year. That's not the, the direction the party is going in. And, and so I just think an interesting thing that has happened here is like the, the formal function of a party is it helps voters make choices more easily in a complicated decision making landscape by giving them a sense of who they can trust. And right now, the party has, as far as I can tell, lost its ability to tell its voters who they can trust. The voters take that as almost like an anti-endorsement. And that's just made them very weak. And if you think of like the act of coalescing as like throwing a lot of money towards one candidate, we obviously saw that with Jeb Bush, where he had an absurd amount of money that did not buy him many votes. There's a great Huffington Post chart. Actually, I think there's some photos of Donald Trump looking at it and um, making some snide comments that just shows <laughs> how much Jeb Bush spent per vote. I think in New Hampshire, Iowa. But it's basically this chart that shows this giant Jeb Bush line. And you did see some coalescing there. Obviously, this was a candidate that perhaps because of his establishment five, perhaps because of other factors, was just summarily dismissed from the conversation where, where you had this person a year ago where we said, oh, this is kind of who we're signaling who we want. We're giving him money. We're talking about him as the candidate. And it was just like a very fast slide out of the race. So I, I disagree with this slightly. 
to me, the, the lesson here, when you're designing any kind of structure, you, you want to make it strong. But at a certain point, you have to recognize that you're not going to be invulnerable. So you have to choose, do we want to make something that's going to bend or do we want to risk that it's going to break? And what Republicans have done is say they want to break, right? That after it became clear, not just from Donald Trump, long before Donald Trump, it was clear that elements of the party base were a little concerned about immigration, a little skeptical about elite-led globalization, and possibly not so high on the nation-building, idealistic aspects of George W. Bush's foreign policy. That those were the areas of concern that you'd see in Ron Paul pop up, that you'd see in Mike Huckabee pop up, that you'd see in, what's his name, David Bratt beat Eric Cantor with no mm -hmm. money, right? That like This was where the base was worried about where the establishment was going. And then what the establishment did in 2012 was it unified around George W. Bush's little brother. 2016. 2016. George W. Bush's little brother, who was fueled by hundreds of millions of dollars, specifically in Wall Street contributions, and who had written a big book about how the thing that the Republican Party needed to do was betray its base, specifically on immigration. <laughs> then when Jeb started to falter, they were like, no, no, no. What we need to do is give it to a guy who's super duper ideologically orthodox on everything, particularly about the nation building idealistic aspects of George W. Bush's foreign policy, but who did deviate massively one time on immigration. Right? <laughs> they, they keep insisting, right, that like ideological deviation is unacceptable, right? That John Kasich, because he accepted free federal money to give health care to poor people, is like anathema. But giant deviation in immigration is fine with them because wink, wink, trust us, Marco's learned his lesson. So it's like an establishment that it's not that like the base now refuses to trust the establishment. It's that the establishment in like grotesque obvious, stupid ways is being untrustworthy. There are plenty of Republican politicians who have a solid record of opposing amnesty for unauthorized immigrants. They refuse to put one of them up as their contender. So, like, of course they don't trust them when everyone's like, oh, yeah, Marco's solid, man. He totally changed his mind about that. It's just that the previous guy we liked best was also deviating on that issue. Oh, and also the Speaker of the House used to favor, right? Like, it's, it's like a joke. They could have, if they had wanted to, found somebody else and been like, we're going to show a little ideological flexibility on, for example, the regulation of giant banks. But no, they said flexibility on nothing except immigration. And like, this is how they're getting steamrolled. Whereas you look at Hillary Clinton, right? Faced with an insurgency, Hillary Clinton, yes, she's counted on the whole party elite coming around her. She's counted on money. She's counted on endorsement. She's counted on the, the liberal media establishment. But she's also just been like, you know what? If people want me to oppose Keystone, if people want me to oppose TPP, I'm going to do that. Because it's not like by magic that the party establishment controls things. And it's like a John Boehner used to talk about this. Nancy Pelosi used to talk about this. Like leading is great, but like you can only lead people where they want to follow. And Republicans keep trying to lead their party into this direction that they clearly don't want to follow on. And like, I don't know why they won't just change their mind. I agree with a lot of that. It doesn't actually seem to me we disagree that much. I think my view is that the Republican Party has failed as a party because it has done things it has that have led it to lose 
its credibility with its voters. And I, and I think you're actually fleshing out that story more. I, I do think this is a place, though, where one of the problems and the reason it's a hard thing for the Republican Party to get over is the disagreement is genuine. I don't think the issue here is that immigration is an ideological deviation for Republican Party elites. I think it's the opposite. I think going hardcore against immigration reform is the ideological deviation for Republican elites. I think that if you actually like got them in a room and injected them with sodium pentothal, if in fact sodium pentothal worked, and had them explain like how they feel about immigration, they would be much further towards a, a looser immigration system than even the Gang of Eight bill was. That I think the Gang of Eight bill was not, I, I think it's usually thought of as Democrats compromising with Republicans, but to some degree it's Republicans trying to find a compromise with their own much more restrictionist base. And I think this is part of the problem. But I do think it gets to this interesting underlying dynamic of the rest of the primary, which is that if it is true that Republican voters don't trust their base, then you have a real problem potentially because there's one version of the argument that is Republicans didn't coalesce quickly enough, but they can still coalesce maybe because the party will still respond to them coalescing. There's another version, which is Republicans could never have coalesced effectively. In fact, insofar as they could have, they more or less did. They did all the things they could have tried, not to make Marco Rubio specifically win, but to make Donald Trump lose. And it failed. If anything, it appeared to strengthen Trump and to some degree strengthen Ted Cruz. And so now that they're in a space where one of their coordination problems is how do you not coordinate in a way that makes Rubio toxic? If Rubio is your, your candidate, how do you not support him in a way that makes him look like a tool of the establishment that Donald Trump has been so effective at running against? How do you not make him a weaker candidate by virtue of your endorsement? There was a, a tweet by, uh, I'm just by his name, a U.S. News and World political reporter who was out in Nevada, and he was saying that um, the people behind him in line for the caucus were saying that they were going to vote against Marco Rubio because they really didn't like all these establishment endorsements he was getting. It made them think he was a tool of the establishment, and they wanted to send the establishment a message. And I think the idea of, like you're saying, the Republicans just need to coalesce around someone, the idea can often be like a little bit vague in terms of what that means. Like, what that what are the actual steps? One of the things... I ran into a lot covering health care. A lot of people would say, oh, the Obama administration did a terrible job selling Obamacare. Like, they didn't talk about it enough. They didn't do X, Y, or Z. When you actually, like, ask people, like, what is it? You know, actually, Obama was out there talking about it. When you try and get into, like, well, what are the tangible steps one takes to sell this massive law? What are the actual things you you do to sell a law that actually doesn't affect that many people, and you're trying to convince people that actually your health care isn't really going to change, so you don't need to worry about this. The high-level um, version of Coalesce, the high-level version of selling Obamacare, it's a little confused, like, what actually could be done. I think this was speaking to kind of Ezra's point about what could Republicans do, or is there just, like, not an option here? Is the divide so significant that it's just going to play out the way it is and reminds me of Obamacare in that way where I think Obamacare is going to be unpopular no matter what the administration did that I, I don't think it was a messaging problem or like a lack of action and it kind of strikes me to see some analogy there to the Republican Party one place where I would I would take that and, and, and agree with it for sure is that I think oftentimes 
people don't want to recognize structural problems. They like to pretend they're tactical problems. On Obamacare, as you say, a lot of the things people thought Obama should have done to sell Obamacare, he did, and those things just didn't work. And so people just kept yelling that he should do the things because of the other explanation. Maybe this gigantic bill that increases government <laughs> control over the healthcare system is not going to be popular was, a, was an explanation they really didn't like. They didn't want to. They didn't want to buy into that. And similarly, I think every Republican right now, and frankly, everybody everywhere, is agreeing this is an anti-establishment year. They're, they're willing to mouth that and, and say it aloud, but they don't really believe it yet. So they keep coming back to this idea that if only the establishment was tactically more effective, that it would still be able to get back control of the primary. But if you really believe that what's happened is people have lost faith in the establishment, if you really believe the strong version of it is an anti-establishment year, then the implications are much more damaging and they, they go more towards the direction Matt's going, which is it's not that the establishment has to change tactic. It has to change itself in ways that would allow it to, to sort of regain its credibility with its base. And it's not 100 percent clear how to do that. I mean, the one thing I will say, which is just a, an odd thing about how much Republicans appear to hate their party, is that in the end, the Republican Party did block immigration. In the end, it did absorb the Tea Party and really let the Tea Party come into leadership of the Republican Party. There's been a lot the Republican Party has done to move pretty far to the right in recent years. And I think there is a way here, too. When I talk to elected Republicans, something they say about this, their base is really angry because their base gave Republicans a House and the Senate, but they still get rolled by Obama. You know, and, and the base feels like the, the promises have been broken, that if only they won Congress, they could control they could control everything, which, to, to, as far as I can tell, is never the promise. I actually think Republicans have gotten a lot done and to a large degree really delivered on stopping Obama to the degree that one can stop the president. It's just that the base also can want to believe things that just aren't true and can take the opinion, like, not that, oh, actually, we need to win the presidency, but, oh, if only these guys weren't such jerks and, and, and tactically weak, we would have already somehow completely destroyed the but president. So here, here's a, a structural point that I think is, is relevant here, is that the idea of a Republican, quote-unquote, establishment, and the idea of a Republican base can often leave out an important third set of actors, right? Which is that someone like like Rush Limbaugh, he's not a rank-and-file Republican. He's an extraordinarily influential Republican. He is much more influential than the average Republican member of the House of Representatives, more influential than the average Republican senator. He's not the single most important person in Republican Party politics, but I'd say he's top 10 and has been for decades in a way that isn't true of any current Republican elected official. So over the past generation, he is maybe after George W. Bush or Tom DeLay, like one of the most significant figures in Republican Party politics. But he is also the promoter of this construction, that there is a Republican establishment that constantly betrays the base. So like the establishment is defined as to not include him, not include Michael Savage, not include these other extremely popular conservative media figures. And they are, I think, the swing constituency in the Trump phenomenon. And that the trouble for Trump would have come not if Republican backbench senators who nobody has ever heard of, like Tom Tillis saying like, yeah, go vote for Marco Rubio. Like nobody knows who he is. And even if they do, nobody cares. Lots of people know who Rush Limbaugh is and care a lot what, what he thinks. And talk radio has been fairly sympathetic to Trump, that they have been really excited about the idea that Trump is not politically correct. They have led the charge to 
basically whip the party on immigration reform several times and are glad that Trump is putting a, a scare into them. They never like John McCain as a person. And, you know, while I think they would not defend the specific content of what Trump said about McCain, they like the idea of taking him on. So so these, these talk radio figures, they're also commercial entities who just have an interest in ratings and advertising that's separate from ideology and, and partisan politics. And uh, David Frum wrote a, a good essay about this, I think back in 2009, uh, about just like the, the power of talk radio in, in the Republican Party. And it's used in a sort of irresponsible way was his thesis. And I think that's a lot of what you're seeing with Trump is that these people play an important role in partisan politics and they play an important role in ideological framing. But whereas like when, when Rich Lowry and National Review put together that against Trump cover, I feel, I mean, I, I don't know those guys well, but I feel really certain that they were like not thinking about like, well, this is really gonna gonna increase our subscription base, right? Like, they are in that game. You know, of course, they want people to read the magazine. They, they want they lost to, their ability to sponsor a debate over that. Right. They, they want the magazine to thrive and flourish, but they care more about conservatism. And, like, that's what they are thinking about when, when they do that stuff. And, and Ezra and I, you know, used to work at a, a, a small publication of, of that sort where uh, the, the American Prospect were ideological movement considerations are like the primary thing that, that the founders care about. And what we're seeing is that the talk radio guys are not really like that. They don't they like in sort of the way that I like just like the Republican primary getting like as fun and goofy and like fascinating and amazing as possible and have not been that disturbed by the fact that Donald Trump does not seem like deeply committed to, to conservative principles. So that strikes me as like where the coalescing hasn't happened. But it's not something like I don't know that like Paul Ryan could fix that problem. I think that's right. One thing that could fix our problems is more discussion of white papers. Yes. Which we will do after this commercial break. This week's episode of The Weeds is sponsored by Harry's Razors. I've been using Harry's Razors for a little while now, and it's just like, it's really great. The razors are cheap. They're easy to get. They come right to my house. You don't have to deal with this sort of nonsense at the store where it's behind lock and key, and there's the guy who's also supposed to be fixing the auto checkout machine. You know, it's a nice, great, close, comfortable shave. It's super convenient. It'll save you a bunch of money. It's German-engineered five-blade cartridges. It gives you a nice, close, comfortable shave. No cuts or burns. They give you a full refund if you're not happy. They've got great prices, factory direct prices, cuts out the middleman, ships directly to your house. It's about half the price of the leading brand. Over 1 million guys have already made the switch. Thousands more switch every day. Why pay $32 for an eight-pack of blades when you can get them for half the price at harrys.com? And the Harry's starter set is a particularly amazing deal. For just 15 bucks, you get a razor, moisturizing shave cream, and three razor blades. So Harry's prices are already really low, but they've got a special offer for you. Harry's will give you $5 off your first order with promo code weeds. So stop overpaying for a great shave. Go to harrys.com right now. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com. Enter code weeds at checkout. So later next week, the Supreme Court is going to take up its biggest abortion case in eight years. And it centers on this Texas law that led to a lot of Planned Parenthood clinics and other abortion clinics there closing. And it's this law that basically puts these new regulations around abortion clinics in Texas. It says that they have to become ambulatory surgical centers, which means, for example, they have to have eight foot wide hallways. If you are a clinic that was built with three foot wide hallways, it is very, very difficult to upgrade to eight foot wide hallways. So many of them end up closing. So this case will be heard oral arguments on March 2nd, next Wednesday. 
so we thought it's fitting to kind of look at a really interesting paper about what this law that the Supreme Court will be ruling on has actually done in Texas. The paper is from the New England Journal of Medicine, and it's from this Texas Public Policy Evaluation Project, which is a group based at the University of Texas, which has really been doing a lot of great research on these new laws that are um, happening there. And they just basically wanted to know, which is a question I've had as a reproductive health reporter for a while, what happens when you restrict abortion access? What happens when clinics like Planned Parenthood close? And there's essentially two theories of this that have been going around Washington. One of them is that just patients go elsewhere, that if you used to get your birth control at a Planned Parenthood, Planned Parenthood goes out of business, you go to a different place, you go to a primary care provider, the same number of women get care. The other theory is that women don't get care, that there's fewer clinics, they have less places to go, so they just end up not getting the care that they used to. And this New England Journal paper, it points towards the latter theory. It suggests that when abortion clinics like Planned Parenthood disappear, places that provide contraceptives, that women just get less birth control and they have more babies. Some of the numbers from this paper that were pretty stunning was they showed there was a 35% decline in women getting long-term reversible contraceptives. These are things like IUDs and implants. Once you have them, they prevent pregnancy for about five years or so. The same number of women kept getting birth control pills. We can talk a little bit later about why there's a lot of worry about those long-acting contraceptives. And you saw that for birth control shots, which you have to get about every three months, women just stopped coming back from them. All of this, perhaps surprisingly or unsurprisingly, led to an increase in births among this population. It turns out when women have less access to birth control that they have more babies. And it's... Do we know what happened to the number of abortions? We do not. This actually does not have number of abortions. The thought is there were less abortions because there was less access to abortion. It's just you you could actually imagine that going either way, right? Because you reduce the access Mm -hmm. to abortion, but you're also increasing the number of pregnancies. So the abortion rate could decline. The size size of the birth control drop. So the study, it's a little bit complex, the design, but basically the people they're studying when they're looking at births were just the people who were getting birth control shots. The size of the decline in birth control shots and the rise in childbearing is pretty similar, which makes it seem like abortion didn't increase, that this just led to people having more babies, not terminating more pregnancies. But that's not going off actual numbers of abortion in the paper. It's going off the decline in birth control and the increase in childbearing. So, you know, this suggests that there's this theory that's been in Washington that when you close abortion clinics and you close places giving out birth control, women will go elsewhere. This paper suggests that it's not the case that if you have less places giving out birth control, you end up with less women, especially lower income women, having access to some of the best methods of birth control. I, I think this paper is really fascinating, actually. And, and one of the things that I think it just speaks to is it is something I think that has been a big theme in the argument over Planned Parenthood, that Planned Parenthood is not simply an abortion provider, that they are a provider of a tremendous number of different kinds of reproductive health care to women. And, you know, one of the the debates, and it's funny because speaking of Donald Trump, he's actually been saying in debates, Planned Parenthood does a lot of good healthcare for women. And I think this is something that has, it often frustrates pro-life folks Mm -hmm. because, you know, their, I think, view oftentimes is all that stuff is fine and it doesn't need to be wrapped up in the providing abortion services. But in practice, it actually is. And so, 
these tactics that are, are being done to close down providers who, who can offer these services are also closing down these providers who offer these other reproductive health services. As Matt says, it might lead to more abortions in net because people are just having more unplanned pregnancies overall. But it certainly is probably going to lead to more teen pregnancy, certainly going to lead to, to, to more, uh, again, unplanned pregnancy. And it, it just speaks to a way in which this kind of strategy, this kind of like trench warfare over this issue that is, is political and it's ideological and it's philosophical and it's value-based, it has a lot of just on-the-ground victims. It has a lot of people who are not part of the big fight but are getting pretty badly hurt by it. Well, and something that's interesting here is that if you go back, you know, a few years, I think there was a lot of tentative optimism about some kind of a, uh, a bipartisan move to like an, an abortion reduction strategy that would be basically an unplanned pregnancy reduction Safe, strategy. Safe, legal, and rare. Right. That, that one of the striking things about the United States of America is that there's a very large number of unplanned pregnancies mm -hmm. in the United States. And it is possible with modern medical technology for there to really be quite few unplanned pregnancies. Dedicated listeners to our, our teen pregnancy episode a couple months back uh, will, will remember that, you know, in the United States, there's a decent number of people who don't use birth control. And there's a lot of people who are the, the main form of birth control that, that people are relying on is, is oral contraceptives, which are relatively difficult to comply with the, with the regime. And there's a lot of failures around that. And so, you know, while there's been this sort of very political debate about Planned Parenthood, there's been a lot of elite excitement about long-acting reversible contraceptives. But these come together because these long-acting contraceptives have a ton of advantages in terms of actually working. But the disadvantage is that you tend to need to like go into a, a doctor's office, right? And that's where these clinics, right, which exactly what Texas was getting rid of, right? But like it's a clinic. It's focused on women. It's focused on reproductive issues. They have trained medical staff. Staff, but it isn't a hospital. It's not as expensive to operate. You can set them up at relatively low cost. Like that's what you need for people to be getting implants, getting IUDs. Right. That, that well, and the, the devices are just expensive. I think most of them cost about five hundred dollars or so. And reproductive health clinics, they kind of got used to the fact that we'll keep a few of these in stock because we know people come here for them. Obamacare increased the reimbursement for these, said that anyone who had insurance could have access to these with no cost sharing. But most most hospitals don't want to go through the work of figuring out, am I going to actually give someone this $500 device? They don't, it's expensive to keep these around. And you actually need someone trained in inserting these. It's not a difficult procedure, but it's not like it's not like writing a prescription. It's not like saying here are some birth control pills. You actually need someone who's going to be able to give someone this. And, this it's, a, and it's a question of mission and focus. Mm -hmm. right? right. Like that's what like Planned Parenthood like that's it's like in the name. It's right. <laughs> and yeah, and you need and a lot of it's just information. One of the things you see is a lot of old ideas about long-acting contraceptives. One of the things that women end up hearing a lot at the doctor that I was actually told is, oh, you can't have an IUD if you've never had a baby before, which is a really outdated view of IUDs. It's not, you can actually have them just fine. But there was this idea like in the 80s and 90s that it should only go to women who have had babies before. So someone might go to a hospital and talk to someone, you know, there who, a primary care doctor who's focus isn't reproductive health, is doing a lot of other things. I might say, oh, you haven't had a baby. You shouldn't have an IUD. 
and at a place like Planned Parenthood where they kind of specialize in these things and they really know all the different technologies, then they're going to be a lot more informed about the idea that the group that represents gynecologists and obstetricians says actually these should be the first line approach for for everyone, for teenagers, for any women of childbearing age. So there's a knowledge gap that um, gets lost when you move from specialty centers to other places women might seek birth control. And uh, also at Texas, for example, is, mm-hmm. is a state which has not been expanding Medicaid, right? So it's there's a certain amount of like in principle you could maybe be doing things to make up for the the loss in service provision. But like everything that's happening in Texas politics is like going in the other direction mm-hmm. of creating alternate centers. So, I mean, I, I, I do think like one thing to be said about this is I know like pro-lifers are frustrated that liberals are like, well, we have to hold all of like women's health issues hostage to Planned Parenthood providing abortion. But on the other hand, is like if you could find me one example anywhere of a state where what happened was was that the conservative movement gained a lot of political power and what they then did was invested a lot of time and energy in creating alternatives to Planned Parenthood for women to get contraceptives and comprehensive women's health control. Like, I'm happy to stand corrected. But like what I have seen is across 50 states, bitter political struggles over should poor people get health care at all? And the more conservative position is always no. The liberal position is always yes. And sometimes you've had like a minority faction of Republicans in the state legislature going along with a Republican governor to say like, okay, but Texas is a very conservative state. Mm -hmm. Their approach to this is shut some clinics down and it's someone else's problem. All right. right. I think that's an episode of The Weeds. Boom. Yes. Well, yeah, it's been another great episode of the week. <laughs> thanks to our, uh, our producer, I.C. Valdez. Um, thanks to the hypothetical future window guy who will uh, fix, <laughs> fix the studio up so we're not interrupted by ambulances. And uh, we'll see you next week. Today's episode of The Weeds is sponsored by CNN's Race for the White House. From executive producers Kevin Spacey and Dana Brunetti comes a new CNN original series, Race for the White House. CNN's riveting six-part docuseries, Race for the White House, digs deep to reveal the most controversial tactics and game-changing strategies used throughout presidential elections in American history. From Andrew Jackson to Bill Clinton, follow 12 presidential hopefuls through six cutthroat races that change the way we vote and how campaigns are run. Uncover the real reasons some became powerful while others failed. With disastrous debates, PR mishaps, bribes, schemes, Race for the White House will challenge the way you think about American politics. Race for the White House series premieres Sunday, March 6th at 10 p.m. Eastern on CNN.